This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. This interview was recorded in 2013. My guest is Jamie Quattro, author of the short story collection, I Want to Show You More, which was a New York Times notable book, voted NPR Best Book of 2013, and New York Times Editor's Choice. Quattro has a graduate degree in English from the College of William and Mary and an MFA from Bennington Writers Seminar. She started pursuing creative writing in second grade and won her first award in sixth grade for a story called In Pac-Man. She says throughout her English graduate studies, while she was writing analytical essays of post-colonial parodies of the Genesis story, she was secretly writing fiction. We began the interview talking about whether her academic training in English and literature made her a better creative writer. In some senses, yes, and in some senses, no. I think that a different part of my brain is engaged when I'm doing the critical work. And it's been very useful to have that background to kind of know the literary history that's come before and traditions that I may or may not be working out of. Um, That's been very helpful. And to have read the greats, you know, to have read all the classics and to have that music in my head, to come to the page with that has been helpful. And, And it's been useful in writing critical pieces, you know, reviews, essays. I just wrote an essay on Flannery O'Connor's Prayer Journal for the Oxford American. And so that, that discourse is, is still there, and it's, it is useful. Um, I think in some ways, when I'm working in that vein, it's hard to extract myself from it to come back to the creative work. In other words, I, ha- I have to finish a critical piece and put it aside for a couple of days, and I get back into the different, more open-brained work of the, of the fiction, which requires, I think, just less organization, <laughs> more mess. I have to let myself be a lot more, more messy. You started writing in in second grade and through college all the way up to your MFA. Did you feel like there were certain themes emerging if you think about your work or what you were interested in? Looking back now, and I can identify some themes, I, I never really think about that at all when I'm working. And certainly no, not at the time. I was just working from one story to the next story, um, writing kind of what I was obsessed with or usually an image I'll see or or something that happens in my daily life will fuse with something that I'm reading, and those two things will be like a little nuclear fusion that happens, and I'll, I'll have to sit down and make something out of them. So I think it's in hindsight, as a writer, that I can see themes, not in the process. I can see that, wow, the marriage of sexuality and spirituality, God and sex is pretty much a strong theme but I didn't know that while I was writing. And I don't think I should know that. I'm not sure it's helpful for writers to be too conscious of, you know, quote-unquote, their themes. Was there anything that you read in the reviews for your short story collection, I Want to Show You More, that was instructional for you? I know that one of the things that continually surprises me when I do read reviews is how many times reviewers will say things that I never thought of and it's like shining a light on the work for me. I'm like, oh my gosh, I did not even think of that. And there it is. Specifically, I'm thinking of the story Sinkhole, and I'd never put together the fact that he has this imaginary sinkhole in his chest, and Ren, the girl that he's in love with, has a literal hole in her side. 
I'd never thought about that until a reviewer pointed out that juxtaposition. And I thought, wow, you know, my subconscious gave her that trial <laughs> or that that thorn in her flesh. My subconscious did that in this really neat, symmetrical way between those two characters, and I hadn't even consciously thought about it. What was your life like growing up that you think these obsessions of sexuality and religion came into all your artistic work? Um, I was raised in a denomination of the Protestant church that approached um, scriptural text very literally, kind of a fundamentalist approach. So I was, in the one sense, raised reading a lot of the Bible. In fact, I think at one point we had to read the whole thing as as part of like a Sunday school assignment. Um, Lots of scripture memorization. So that, so there was that biblical training or biblical exposure as part of my childhood. So when you're reading the Bible and you see there's there's a lot of sex and there's a lot of use of sexual image and metaphor to describe God's love for his people or the church. You know, they the second coming is called the consummation. So you you see all that on the one hand and, and on the other hand if you're if you're raised in a with a religious upbringing, there's all these strictures of the expression of sexuality, obviously. And I think I just grew up seeing that divide and being perplexed by it, not consciously, but probably subconsciously, I wondered how, how two things matched. And, of course, then studying English, you know, you start reading, like, the metaphysical poets, who, obviously, the, the fusion of sexual and sacred was a big part of, of what they were doing. And then you come to people like Joyce, who that was a big part of his work, and even Flannery O'Connor did a lot of that. And so I think that there, there's a strong tradition of the merger of sexual and sacred throughout literature. And between that and reading the Bible, it, it probably couldn't help but work its, work its way into my fiction. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jamie Quattro, author of the short story collection, I Want to Show You More. So your stories have some magical realism where something just sort of so unbelievable happens, such as a woman coming home to find her lover's corpse in her bed, and then she keeps it there for months. Tell me a little bit about that and your perspective on magical realism and your craft. I think the way to make it work is to leave everything else in the universe of the story as it is in reality and tweak a single element so that you have enough of the real world as touch points for the reader that that one surreal thing really starts out. I think when you start tweaking everything, you know, and creating fantasy worlds and fantasy realities, it can still work, but but you, you kind of start to blend into a different genre maybe. So like in Decomposition, the corpse story you mentioned, Everything is recognizable except for that very surreal element of a corpse being in the bed, decomposing. That's one way in which that I, I prefer to work is not, not messing with the physical universe or the known universe too much. The story you just mentioned, Decomposition, a primer for promiscuous housewives, is the story about a couple. She has been having this long-distance affair and finally decides to tell her husband about it. And as soon as she does, they go home. And her her telling him to me meant that it was ending, and then they go home, and his dead body is in their bed. Mm-hmm. 
improbably. Um, and then they live with it in their bed. They keep it in their bed and it's this sort of wedge between between them that maybe they're just having a hard time dealing with the reality of her having this affair. And tell me a little bit about what brought you to writing this story. Um, interestingly enough, I was I was reading Flaubert at the time that I wrote that story. I was rereading Madame Bovary and I was thinking about the way he changed the novel. In other words, he, sh- he shifted the emphasis from, from the what to the how. You know, we talk about his emphasis on style. I was thinking about style and what makes style style. What is it about his style that was so different? And, of course, the, one of the main things that everyone talks about is his erasure of the authorial presence, the rejection of the first person singular, that kind of dear reader, you know, the, the quasi-commentary, and also the exclusion of like the moral discourse from the outside coming into the story. But, okay, so he got rid of the authorial presence, but what was it about the actual writing that, that stood out? And to me, it was this, the way he would slow down and notice every single detail. Um, and it didn't stop when it came to the corpse. To me, that just completely stood out compared to other novels of the 1850s, was he watched the decomposition process take place and described certain elements of it. So there's a scene where the women sitting with um, Emma Bovary's body lift the veil over her face and her jaw is open and a black fluid is, is oozing out like vomit. And it was that image where I kind of sat back and thought, oh, God, I've never, ever looked at human decomposition. So I started looking into the human decomposition. <laughs> and it, it was difficult to look, but I'd, I'd heard this um, Japanese film director say that to be an artist means to never avert one's eyes. So I stopped averting my eyes, and as I was looking into all this decomposition process, I was thinking also about the stages of grief, but a grief that couldn't be named, and thinking about the five stages of human decomposition as parallel to the five stages of grief. Uh, I started drafting this story, and I think it really came out of Flaubert, to be honest, that seminal image. You wrote the 15 stories in I Want to Show You More over two years. And I'm wondering, as you were writing, if you found that you had a certain crux to overcome with fiction. I find endings supremely difficult. (laughs) I think that is probably the hardest thing for me. Often I'll know the last sentence of a story before I know what's in the middle or even what happens much at the beginning. Amy Hempel once said that when when she knew the first and the last sentence uh, is when she was able to begin drafting a story. And I I find that to be true for me, that if I can have the last sentence, it gives me a sense of where I want to land, and it's a goal to work toward. But getting there, especially at the very end, I find enormously challenging. Endings should read, I think, like poetry. I think the reader, especially the ending of a short story, the reader's slowing down. You want the cadence to be right, and uh, yeah, endings. Endings are my nemesis. And titles. (laughs) Terrible at titles. How do you know when the sentence comes to you that it's the last one? It just, I don't know, it just stays in my head, and it just, I think, oh, that sounds like a last sentence. So the sentence that I have in my head right now is, I tell them to enjoy the view. And it has to do with this, I know it has to do with this location here on the mountain called Sunset Rock. Um, it's the place that Bragg and Longstreet stood and watched the Union Army stream into Lookout Valley, and it was kind of the moment when they knew that they were going to lose Chattanooga. And so, you know, Sunset Rock face east, so it's literally, you can watch the sunset, but it's also a figurative spot in which sort of the sun started to set on the Confederacy and the, the, you know, the great dream of the South. 
and um, so I want to I want to write a story incorporating Sunset Rock somehow. But it's become such a tourist site, and people will often ask me when I'm out running, you know, where's Sunset Rock? So somehow I'll get to that last sentence at some point. But and you were saying that titles are hard, and that um, is something that the title for this ch- change for I want to show you more. Can you tell me about that? That was a interesting process. Uh, the, we sold the collection with the title Ladies and Gentlemen of the Pavement. And everyone was thrilled with that title. I loved it. But here's a word of advice. Google Google your your title before you put it on your book. Because I Googled my title maybe a month after we sold the book, and another story collection came up with the title Ladies and Gentlemen. And I wrote to my editor and said, this isn't a big deal, is it? And she said, yeah, really, we really need to change the title. So we went through about maybe four or five months of trying on different titles. And it gets a little tricky once you start to get sales and marketing involved and a whole team of people involved because everyone weighs in. Whereas if you just present your title, usually you don't have those discussions. So at one point, I wanted to call it demolition stories, but I think sales and marketing thought that was too negative or too dark. We had You Look Like Jesus as a title for a little while, but then, of course, People would say, well, do you want to put Jesus on the cover after Dennis Johnson? <laughs> Jesus, son. What other titles? We at one point tossed around the idea of calling it just Lookout Mountain Stories. And I'm so grateful that we landed on I Want to Show You More, which is not a title of one of the stories. It's a line from the story You Look Like Jesus. Um, I'm just grateful because we, could, we ended up being able to do this really great cover with that title, um, with the foil. I don't think we could have done that with any of the other titles. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jamie Quattro, author of the short story collection, I Want to Show You More. It's an incredible cover. So what it looks like is the artist has taken foil and in cursive written in sort of 3D, I Want to Show You More stories, Jamie Quattro at the bottom, and then she's in this dress of tinfoil facing the word the sleeves are sort of unfurling and she's holding the end of the E from the word more. And how, right. did, how did this cover came, come about? It's a really neat story. This is one of my favorite stories to tell. We had gone through several iterations of cover designs and nothing was working. We weren't liking anything, my editor, my agent, nor I, none of us. And um, I got this email one day from my editor saying, we'd like to approach a visual artist. Her name is Rachel Perry Welty. Here's a link to her website so you can see her work. And I almost, you know, (laughs) fell over because Rachel is one of my good friends. We had been at the McDowell Colony together twice, and um, she had been with me the day that the book went to auction. So it was just this really kind of beautiful (laughs) cosmic connection. And so I think the gift of that was that Rachel, she's such a well-known, well-respected visual artist. I'm not sure she would have designed a book cover, but because she knew me and because she'd read the book and read the stories, she was excited to do it. And I've told her I want her to do all my covers now. <laughs> we'll see. How much do you think that matters, the cover? I'm not sure. I, I, I'm thrilled with having such a, a unique cover, and it means a lot to me. I'm not sure how much the cover plays into my you know, whether or not I buy a book or what, what I think about a book. But I'm not, I, I don't know how that would translate to the mass populace if, if covers really do matter. I know often they'll change a cover between a, the hardcover and the paperback because of sales. So it must have, it, there, there must be a connection. I'm just not sure that personally 
it, it matters to me when I buy a book. You have a story in this collection called Better to Lose an Eye. That story is about a girl whose mother was shot by her husband or boyfriend? Her boyfriend. Her boyfriend. And she ends up in a wheelchair and they go to a party and the party is happening up the stairs and outside and her mother is in this wheelchair and she's, you know, wondering how the mother's going to get up there and then all the men come and carry her up. But even though she gets up there, she's still sort of off by herself. And right, it's, someone comes to sit with her. And so did that happen from something that you, did that story come about from something that you witnessed? It actually did. That that happened um, when we lived in Arizona, went to a pool party, very similar. And this, there was a woman in this very similar situation who was a quadriplegic, and her, her daughter was in my son's class. And um, there was that moment, uh, and I arrived at the party after they'd already carried her up. Everyone was talking about it. And, and in, in real life, everybody did go and talk to her and sit with her. It was beautiful. But um, in the story, what, what captivated me was that moment when, through the little girl's eyes, that kind of horror that you would have at having to explain to all of your friends what happened to your mom and why she was like that, and that dread, you know, that you would experience on the way there. And then arriving and realizing <laughs> that moment of, oh, I'm not going to have to because she can't get up the stairs. And the relief of that moment, but then also the guilt that you would feel that your mom had to sit down there while everybody else was having fun at the top. So I was really obsessed with that moment when they arrived at the party and realized, oh, we have to get up these stairs. That was the crux moment for me. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jamie Quattro, author of the short story collection, I Want to Show You More. I'm wondering if you can share some piece of literature that influenced you as a writer. It's, it's Jack Gilbert's poetry. All of it is, is really the, the large answer to that, that question. I love reading poetry. I find reading poetry so helpful to me as a fiction writer. Um, I try. I actually sort of try to write my own poetry, although I would not characterize myself as a poet. Um, but there's a particular poem called Exceeding, and um, I thought I would just read it. Um, Exceeding. Flying up, crossing over, going forward, passing through, getting deep enough, breaking into, finding the way, living at the heart, and going beyond that. Finally realizing that arriving is not the same as being resident, that what we do is not what we are doing. We go into the orchard for apples, but what we carry back is the day among trees with odor, coolness, dappled light, and time, the season and geese going over, always and always with death to come, and before that, the dishonor of growing old. But meanwhile, the trees are heavy with ripe fruit. We try to visit Greece, and find ourselves instead in the pointless noon, standing among vetch and grapes, disassembling as night climbs beautifully out of the earth and God holds his breath. In the distance, there is the faint clatter of a farmer's bucket as she gets water up at the well for the animals. What I love about this poem is, you know, the overall point about life is that how much more is always happening around us if we're awake to it. We go into the orchard for apples. But actually what we're carrying back is so much more. It's the entire day, the odor, the coolness, the, the dappled light, the sense of time, 
But what I find inspiring as a writer is that I think this translates so beautifully to the artistic process. As we, we come to the page, you know, you come to the page, say, you're going to write a scene about a man sowing vegetables, you, sort of that entry into the orchard thinking, you know, I'm going in for apples. And I wind up <laughs> lifting my head and coming out of the orchard and going, wow, I just wrote a scene about this man's first time um, visiting a prostitute. And that happens every time I come to the page and kind of lose myself in it, is that realizing that what I intend to do is not, in fact, what I'm doing, and that the mystery of that. And I think the poem's structure so beautifully elucidates it as well. He starts up out with all these grand intentions, you know, going forward, passing through, breaking into, living at the heart, and ends with that small sound, the faint clatter of the farmer's bucket. So even the poem surprises itself. So can you read a passage from something you wrote? It could be something that was maybe hard to write or something that changed a lot or something you feel you succeeded at. Sure. I The hardest story, people often ask which was the hardest story to write, and I always say demolition. And one of the reasons it was so difficult to write is, well, the, it's told in the third-person plural, the we voice. I was influenced, I think, by Stephen Milhauser, um, who often use, uses that third-person plural. Um, but what but was so difficult about it, it was, it was so long originally, and I had to cut so much. And um, from the first draft to the last, I cut it, it, I cut it in half. And there's a scene in the first draft that I cut that I kind of love and I wish I would have left in. So I thought I would read, it since, is it okay to read something that was in a first draft that didn't make it into the final? Of course. So Demolition is a story um, about a church congregation told from the collective voice of the congregation that tears down this sort of historic um, cathedral-like church and winds up devolving into an almost cult-like orgy experience um, in a cave in a nature preserve uh, on Lookout Mountain. So there's this scene where it's the moment before the first, um, you know, the, the wrecking ball hits for the first time, and they all gather to watch the demolition across, from across the street. And in the original version... Teddy Ellison stood beside a rumbling excavator. He looked up at the driver in his elevated cab, who gave him a thumbs up. Teddy raised an orange flag, let it fall. The excavator reared back, its bent arm blindly probing the air. Then it straightened and with sudden delicate precision plunged. So that's, that's the extent of the description of demolition. In the first draft, there are two paragraphs that I'd written, and I'll just read them. So the machinery's crashed around the building. And then here's the new part that I excised. A metal cage the size of a phone booth sat beside a bent-over Southway crane. A man carrying a rescue circular saw stepped inside the cage. He wore goggles. Two other men attached the steel cables on its roof to a hook at the crane's tip. Then the crane lifted the man six stories up until the cage hung, swaying, beside the bronze cross at the tip of the patina spire. We tilted our heads back, the white latticework of the crane's neck, a ladder silhouetted against blue. The man cut. Sparks jumped, fell, burned out. Then the cage lowered. We thought of deep seas, oxygen tanks, harpoons. And the man stepped out, holding the cross in one hand. It was the length of a French loaf. The man raised his goggles and handed it to Teddy Ellison, who walked across the street and placed it in the outstretched arms of Marguerite Dean, who was nine. 
She held it up to her mother, who quickly handed it to her husband, who turned and passed it off to the woman behind him. We passed the cross around. It was heavy for something so small. And then it continues with the, uh, it goes right back into the text I just read with um, Terry Ellison went back and stood beside the rumbling excavator. So those were the paragraphs that I cut. It was that moment where the first thing they did before they destroyed the building was they cut down the cross and, and this image of the congregation kind of like, oh, I don't want to touch it, I don't want to touch it, and passing it around to one another. And are you happy with it that you did get rid of it? In some ways, I wish it was still in there. I mean, this, I saved my original version, my director's cut, if you will. <laughs> and there are certain parts that I'm really glad that I cut. I had this original um, ending that was too explainy, I think. And I'm glad that's gone. And, th- and there are other parts I wish I had left in, and that's one of them. Where do you write? I write at my kitchen table at present. I have a chicken coop in the backyard that's actually a failed chicken coop. We were told halfway through construction that city ordinance wouldn't let us raise chickens. So we turned it into a little studio. So it's, it's kind of funny to when I write out there in the warmer weather. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? It's a, a number of things. I'm a classical pianist. So I go wander over to my living room and sit down and lose myself in some difficult piece of music. Uh, I think it accesses a whole different part of my brain and so unselfconscious to sit and play music. So I've always got some kind of piece I'm working on. Right now I'm working on um, Liszt's Lieberstrom's gorgeous, gorgeous piece, and um, some of the French suites, some of Bach's French suites. And I also run. I'm a, I'm a big runner. And again, that's another activity where I can sort of forget myself. And I also practice yoga. So those three, those are my trifecta of escapes. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My husband is always my first reader. And he's a good reader? Yeah, he's got that great gut level response that, you know, it isn't like a, my writing, writing friends will talk about word choices or cadence, whereas Scott will just say, you know, I don't really like when when the husband says that, or, you know, I, don't, I didn't believe that the woman would do that. that. That kind of feedback is immensely helpful. And how have you dealt with rejection? Rejection is usually um, fueling to me. I, I think that rejection drives me to the page, makes me want to write more and better. So usually I deal with, with rejection by sitting down and <laughs> writing furiously. And what is your favorite word? I thought about this one for a little bit, but um, there's such a hard question for a writer to answer. You know, we're drunk with words. But a word I use a lot that I find very useful is palimpsest. It, 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 it literally means scraped clean again, but it's palimpsest. It's from scrolls or books, ancient scrolls or books, and the text would be scraped off so the paper could be used again. But often the text that was removed is still visible beneath the overlaid text. I've, I've just used it in, in a number of, of contexts. Originally, I learned that word when I was writing my master's thesis on post-colonial reinterpretations of the Genesis story, where, you know, they'd have their indigenous story, and then the colonizers would come in and give them the biblical story. So when the colonized peoples would write creation stories, you would see sort of this strange palimpsest <laughs> mixture of the indigenous story beneath the, the biblical story, you'd have, like the same Wilson-Harris, the seven-day river journey, but it would be the creation story, the seven days in reverse. But I've used it in fiction. Um, I think I used it in a story about a husband looking at his wife's body. She's middle-aged, but seeing it in palimpsest, because he knows the 20-year-old body that was 
you know, beneath and still visible beneath the 40-year-old body. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Jamie Quattro, author of the short story collection, I Want to Show You More. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.